0: Our audience at this Martinov uh, seminar are postgraduate students researching this period. I'm going to invite them now to give us some response to what they've heard in these very interesting and provocative papers that we've all been listening to. And if I could ask them to stand up and give, give us their names just before they speak, yes.
1: Um, hello, uh, I'm Sophie Cooper. Um, thank you so much for all of these papers. Um, I was thinking that one of um if we go back to the first paper and the whole idea of who's taking part um I think we're still taking too narrow an approach on this whole question of who's taking part in um the civil war but particularly on who's taking part in shaping ideas about what it is to be a republic and what self-determination is and we still have this emphasis on particularly male politicians, bishops um, and armed revolution. I would argue that we need to take into account a more longer term perspective on where these questions and discussions are coming from, particularly bringing in the influence of uh, people like teachers, uh, male and women, Uh, men and women and also lay and religious if you look to the diaspora for example if you look in the 1890s 1900s and 1910s schools are having massive discussions on what self-determination means for Ireland these are big debates Um, this is happening in schools but it's also happening in sodalities in community centres And I think we need to really consider the impact of these people on um, multi-generational communities. The children that are having these debates in the 1910s are also the people who are being influential in international discussions, both in the diaspora and Ireland, when it comes to 1920. So I, I just think we need to kind of take in... Children, but also community leaders um, who are having uh, big impacts at a local as well as national
0: level. So, wider sources should be considered?
1: Well, wider sources, but also just wider types of influence. Um, it's not just people that pick up a gun or spy, um, it's people who um, kind of facilitate networks as yeah. well. Um, okay, I'll you. put that to the, to the, to the
0: panel. Chairman what, of the what's your view on that point? And also then, what about
2: sources? Would the sources be there? It's a very important point and it's a very fair point. And we are accustomed, I suppose, to being drawn towards particular sources um, that are quite accessible now, particularly accessible now in this day and age. Um, so I think it is perfectly legitimate to point out um, how people are formed by various influences, um, particularly during their tender years. There were a few references to this during the treaty debates where people talked about what was drummed into them, uh, not just in school, but also at home, um, and, and the role of, of, of parents, uh, and the type of environment and ethos uh, that is relevant for them. That's difficult to document, um, because we don't necessarily have a copious amount of memoirs in relation to that. Uh, we get scraps, uh, we get references uh, but we've got to dig as, as, as deeply as we can. Um, I've no doubt that there has been very interesting work done on the teaching of history in national schools in particular which could be very loaded and, and uh, could have consequences uh, depending on the school uh, and, and where it was uh, and who was in charge uh, of the um, employment of, of, of individual teachers. But there is no doubt that in what we do have uh, of, of memoirs of people growing up in the late 19th and the early 20th century that many of them do refer um, to, to what they absorbed in school. Yet, that does not mean that their experience was representative of all of the members of that class. Um, and I often think, because I've been going through a lot of Sean Lamas' material recently, uh, Lamass talked about his own schooling and the different directions in which the classmates went off. So if that, you know, if you were in... Uh, a a classroom like that um, there wasn't one communal experience Uh, and again that depended on what was expected of them but also the kind of houses that they were growing up in so I think it's a very fair and important point uh, but there's always going to be a difficulty in in trying to get uh, a range of sources that would leave you confident that they are representative. Yeah, Margaret Kelleher what would your view be on that?
3: Uh, I'd echo that, and I'm struck again by the President's very powerful words about the importance of perspectives from below. Uh, And I think, as the speaker from the floor has said, uh, childhood experiences are a key part of that. And and in turn, perhaps children's literature and what people are reading uh, as children is important. But I also think, Chair, a crucial issue is not just sources, but how they're being made available. And I think it behoves us in this context to think, not alone of what we're reflecting, but what we are in turn making available for future generations. And I think that's why digitization projects are so important. As I mentioned in my own talk, the digitization of the the diaries of Rosamund Jacob, for example, will hopefully mean uh, that with that wider source material, we can ask both broader uh, and deeper questions at the same time.
0: But, and her information also would come into that, wouldn't it? Yes. Because yeah,
3: she was suffragist,
0: republican, a feminist, pacifist, and a very original thinker.
3: That's right, and I'm reminded of that adage that when one is involved in the retrieval of history, one may not always like what one finds, uh, and I think that's been an important point for our reflections here as well, is to recover perspectives that, that sometimes can can be awkward uh, and, and less attractive. Uh, certainly the pacifism of Rosamond Jacob is an exception to that, but there are other perspectives coming from a lot of these women in the period uh, that might not fit some of our, our, our points of view, and uh, I welcome the point made throughout the series that we must recover women's history in various forms. There is not a, one form of woman um, in this conflict and I really welcome the complexity that's emerging even today.
0: Yeah, Dahi, Dahi Um
4: I think a great work has been done in, in recent years on the diaspora, for example. Um, and I think as historians, it is incumbent upon us to cast our net as widely as possible in terms of sources. And I was struck while you asked your question, um, Many historians now are beginning to use collections like the Folklore Collection in UCD, which gives us a brilliant snapshot of what people are absorbing at school, or what they're absorbing at home and maybe telling their school teacher. Uh, and it also gets us around sort of one of the difficulties of this period, and that has been perhaps an excessive reliance on the Bureau of Military History and indeed the, the Pensions Collection, where our perspective is very much geared through those sources, on, on competence, um, And I think things like the Folklore Commission, what people are reading, as Margaret mentioned, is really, really important to give us greater balance.
0: But that'd be a snapshot of the 1930s, wouldn't it? Late 30s, wasn't that when most of that was done and captured? Late 30s, yeah. Yeah. Mary?
5: Um, I'm fascinated by your question. It's really intriguing and interesting. And I'm someone who's descended from grandparents and great-grandparents who were teachers in Cork and Clare. And I think what we need to get into is the deference of the society in that period. There is a deference shown to clergy, shown to people with a degree of education and leadership. And that's where the role of the teacher in the community, I think, is extremely important. And how do you capture it? A, there's various ways. First of all, the number of them, and I'm I know this. This would uh, uh, actually happen to my grandparents uh, and other relatives. The way they went on a voluntary basis to the Guelph to learn the Irish language. I mean, a, I mean, there's a whole generation of teachers in the schools who are teaching the Irish language off in the 1920s and 30s, who will not have grown up learning it in any way and are really having to work and doing it in their free time through voluntary exercises to to promote the Irish language, and they, they play a crucial role in that. I think what you need to go looking for is into local sources of one kind or another. I think obscure meetings that took place in towns and communities, who are the people who speak out at those meetings? Who are the people that provide leadership? And we do need to begin to into that, and I mean, we're into some of what the president was talking about: respectability, status, and deference. And uh, I completely agree with what you're saying there. Great question.
0: Yeah, but what's the answer, President? What's your What's your opinion about sources and getting access to these other voices?
6: First of all, I think it's uh, important that there be, if you like, as wide a possible access sought to sources as possible, but. Sometimes we have to rely on, f- on the work of, of fiction and of, po- of poetry to recover that, because of many people, it isn't a case that their record is being ignored. is that they were suppressed, and uh, people were ma- made silent. There are a couple of things that are very, very important, I think, in it in relation to some of the tendencies in the revisionism. And if you take a, a, a foundational historian like Leckie, Leckie had a view of the Irish uh, that was very, very close to an earlier than the philosopher whom would have the same view in many cases. The Irish were not conquered by Rome. They would have none of the civilities of education that others would have had from such an experience. And at any time, they are about uh, to break out in an expression of barbarity. That's in black and white. Now, what that tells you is something else as well. When I had used the word humiliations myself, Within the society, you have others who are, if you like, habitu- I would, co- well, would call it habituated to the deference. In order to get on and be acceptable to the local people in the big house and whatever like that, you learned how to be a suitably deferential to the class society. That's full of that in the the, 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 the Irish RM and, uh, and, and all of that. You're, but you're but, saying fiction as a source, then? Yes, I am. But not only that, I'm saying that there was, in fact, actually a real problem. There's, there isn't resolved in relation to the imperial mindset of seeing the Irish as inferior. And I also think that that isn't just a division, a simple division. I think that people took it into themselves. I find it very emotional for me, for example, to find that people in Connemara were learning English and that you had to have enough English to be able to be respectable when you went to the United States. or refer to her on Wachtanis, Tianga and and all of these phrases. Um, and that that was was the national schools as well, and the church was behind that. It was that, wasn't indeed a long yes, and, and indeed, and a long time. This is very simplistic. Wherever. One of the most amusing things I heard was before our accession to the European Union of a non teaching young girl saying to them there would be lots of jobs addressing envelopes when we're in the European Union. The notions, this is very important. I think the question is a very valuable question. The other part of it is the division that is there uh, bet- about the diaspora. The, the Diaspora has different views, in the, 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 the Irish Times they did a reference in the 1890s they have gone abroad and they have located themselves in the most powerful country that is emerging and they will never let us forget it and their influence they, is the famine is in, 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 in their mind. And then you get a later group as well, the people who emigrate in the 1920s are at a lesser level even when they meet their fellow Irish in the United States or Australia, they have to come in at a lower level in relation to competing for jobs. And if you look at how they're dispersed in the United States, they're not in fact actually sharing all the property now that the Irish Americans of the previous generation have in the cities. They're scattered everywhere.
3: Yeah.
6: And you'll find yeah. that in the Irish pilot when they're looking, have you seen so-and-so with the freckled face? He was last seen, and
0: so on. Yeah. Fergal McGarry, you've been looking at some of this. Yeah,
7: Yeah. I mean, just to go back to Sophie's question, which I think is is a great one, I mean, I, I would argue maybe the single biggest influence on the revolutionary generation is not actually republicanism, but it's cultural nationalism. And I think sometimes the language of cultural nationalism can be misleading. We think of, you know, the search for an Irish Ireland but actually this generation of people were so outward-looking, you know, they were really aware of what was happening in terms of the development of other nationalisms and, you know, c- comparative kind of situations, if you look at people, say, involved in the Abbey Theatre and so on. To someone like Patrick Pierce, who really sort of personifies Archon, he's constantly writing to nationalists and intellectuals all, all around the world, so this incredible kind of intellectual exchange, and that maybe brings us to the other point to make, which is about um, diaspora, and I think sometimes maybe there's an issue about how we write about this period, because, We tend to write about sort of Irish nationalism within Ireland and then we write about the diasporas, you know, within the context of Australia or or Canada or whatever. But if you actually look at lives and you see it really strongly in biographies, you know, people live transnational lives. And it's not just, you know, the elite, but obviously, um, as your own work has shown, uh, you know ordinary people um you know religious orders the catholic church is an international organization the british army empire posts so i think sometimes we, we we think that we live in a much more international world than maybe people 100 years ago and also the consumption of media you know so, so i think um you know we need to think about this this incredible sort of circulation of ideas and influences to understand also what's happening just in a village in in clare or whatever yeah.
8: another contribution from yes Uh, My name is uh, Stephen Egan. I'm a PhD researcher at Queen's University, Belfast. Um, Building on what's uh, just uh, happened with the discussion, uh, um, my area of research looks at how partition was received by the Irish diaspora, particularly with those within the British Empire. And I think something that's really interesting that I'm really pleased to see in our reflections today is that we are taking into account not just the Irish on the island of Ireland, but in a much broader uh, international and global sense. Um, Something that I wonder if the panel could speak more to is the traumatic nature of partition for those communities. And in particular, I specialize in looking at Canada and Australia. Um, Irish identity within these diasporas is often in flux. And uh, in Canada, in particular, if we look at the work of Mark McGowan and Patrick Mannion, we see that Irish Canada is in a decline until we hit the revolutionary period where there's almost a resurgence of interest in the Irish nation uh, and in conceptions of Irishness. Um, But Partition ultimately ends that in many, many ways. Um, You have a disjointedness between the Irish Protestants of Canada, who in 1920 would regularly attend Irish Nights at Orange Lodges. By 1921 and by 1922, they are no longer being labelled as such. They're being called Imperial Nights or British Nights. And similarly, in Australia, you also have a kind of a inward uh, retrospection of identity amongst these diasporic communities. If there were two Irish identities in both those continents. Absolutely, yes. Uh, and, and the processes of which they develop and change is, is very different. Australia almost seems to be more advanced uh, in terms of the, um, I suppose, the partitioning of identity rather than the partitioning line, politically speaking. Um, so I was wondering if the panel could speak a little bit more to how we can better capture how partition is not just a line on a map but also in the hearts and minds of those from below
0: yeah well it always was of course in the hearts and minds wasn't it that's also the point Fergal.
7: yeah i mean uh, i haven't looked at the impact of partition in close detail in different countries and it strikes me as a really f- fascinating subject to look at but wh- much of what you're saying i think also applies actually to the impact of of the civil war i mean one of the things that's really extraordinary i think about the, the irish question and way in which it, it kind of electrifies Irish people everywhere is it sort of a, it creates this kind of global Irish consciousness and the president was talking about different generations in the sense these different generations are brought together in 1920 and 1921 in this great kind of common cause and what happens with the, the, the treaty split um, and the Civil War is it kind of shatters that sense of a, a united Irish movement of course you know America remains very important in terms of influencing Irish developments but I, I, I do think that 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 phenomena of a sort of an Irish community working together was was disrupted in in, in grievous ways. And I think one of the interesting themes also in terms of looking at Commonwealth countries like um, Australia and New Zealand and so on is the the, the consciousness of what Irish identity and Irish nationalism stood for meant something different than in America. In Ireland, in Australia and New Zealand, in the context of the First World War, to be, to be an Irish nationalist is a much more subversive thing. It's, it's, there's alignments with anti-war, anti-conscription kind of movements after Easter 1916 that becomes very fraught. Whereas in America, there's a, there's a much a much kind of a more separatist. Uh, and so the interplay between different s- notions of what Irish identity and politics are in different parts of the world is, is a really sort of fascinating aspect of what's happening 1920, 1921, and it bears on partition and also, obviously, the, the response to the treaty. Um,
0: Dermot Ferriter wasn't... Par- partition, of course, was sold by the British as temporary, mm. or possibly temporary. It certainly was indefinite. And uh, Lloyd George, of course, here, was, he, was the, he was the conjurer. I, I think you used that m- metaphor yourself. Uh, and he was a well-known conjurer and a trickster. And look at the punch cartoons about him. This is a trick I haven't done before. And he was a, he was a master at, at deception and at, you could say, self-deception.
2: Yeah, and you could say he was speaking out of different sides of his mouth um, in order to try and and, and balance what he had to balance uh, in the autumn of 1921. Um, When you look at, and I quoted James Craig's account of their meeting after the treaty had been signed, he felt betrayal, and of course this betrayal felt uh, by others too. Um, You can look back now and wonder were they too naive and too delusional to be accepting, the, accepting these reassurances. But you've also got to acknowledge what was being said privately, the reassurances that are being given privately. There were those at the heart of the British establishment who didn't want this to be a long-term commitment. They wanted it away from them for understandable reasons. It had divided their politics for so long. You know, in the previous home rule crisis, you know, many of them were veterans of that. Uh, There was a compelling case to get rid of it. And interestingly, given where we are now, there was a compelling economic case. There's that line that's used by David Lloyd George to James Craig, don't cut off the natural circuits of commercial activity. Ridiculous for a small island. Uh, And some of his colleagues were corresponding uh, privately. But he's leader of a coalition government. He has to look out for Andrew Bonner Law. -Law. He has to be conscious of how the diehards, as he calls them himself, can be mobilized in relation still to the Ulster question, notwithstanding what I've said. Um, And what's interesting about it, I suppose internationally, um, which is being raised in the question, uh, there was a widespread belief, even on the part of those who had accepted the treaty, that they could pursue an international propaganda campaign against partition that would have a tremendous moral force behind it on the grounds that this was clearly an injustice that would be recognised internationally the, the problem, Boundary Bureau, for instance. Yeah, very uh, sophisticated analysis. Uh, yeah, of, of, who was an Ulster man and, and yeah. who, who believed passionately in that, and we shouldn't be dismissive of it now, but at the same time, we have to acknowledge how difficult it was to keep the coherence uh, in relation to the Irish question once the compromise has been made, and that's very difficult in uh, Australia. You can see the anger that's generated by Archbishop Mannix in Melbourne when, he, you know, when he's uh, denouncing the compromise uh, and making common cause with the anti-treatyites, um, so, you know, and, and that causes difficulties in Australia too. Uh, so it's difficult to sustain that, and yet they're still trying to do it in the late 40s and into the early 1950s, the idea of an international campaign against partition, but the audience isn't there. Yeah, the audience
0: was, was certainly gone by then, but there was a, there is a field of forces at work here so complex that there are a lot of unintended consequences as well. Would, would, would you agree with that, Dahi? Um,
4: absolutely, um, I, I think, I mean, well, I think what we have to remember maybe is that partition is something that very significant uh, agencies in Irish society are thinking about this and worried about this for a very long time before um, it becomes a reality in, in 1920. And I suppose when you asked your question, Stephen, I was really struck by um, the absence maybe of a more sustained uh, comparison uh, between the impact of partition and the, the impact on partitioners mentalities in Ireland and what's going on in Central and Eastern Europe at this very time. Uh, and I think maybe we have a lot to learn by looking at that European example more deeply as historians. Yeah. Margaret, you nodding to that?
3: Yeah. Absolutely. And I'm, again, I'm thinking about sources here in, in relation to the question about how we might track the views of the diaspora. I think it's really important that we look at different forms of cultural expression there as we know music plays a key part, but actually also film, if you think of the success of Liam O'Flaherty in, in terms of Hollywood, uh, really interesting to see how Irish themes appear in some of the uh, early generations of, 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 um, of filmmaking um, in the States, so maybe that's one of the places where we can find a, a crucial insight into how viewpoints and interpretations of Ireland are being shaped by the dialogue. Because otherwise we're in danger, really, of having a gap, you know, between the early 20th century and now. And I think popular culture is a way to trace how opinions and, and memories that weren't physical memories in the diaspora are shaped. So are,
0: are the sources more difficult to get at in, in those? areas do you think?
3: They, c- they can be but I think there can also be a certain hierarchy of sources and uh, and I think popular culture and often related to that women's writings can lose out in that hierarchy so I applaud Stephen himself for the work he's doing and look forward to reading more.
9: Right can we have some yes hi um, I'm Stephen O'Neill and I'm working at Trinity and the Irish Museum of Modern Art and um, thanks very much to everyone for the papers really enjoyed all of them Part of what I'm looking at at the minute is the idea of sources in the context of, say, um, if we're talking about bottom up history, what the kind of ordinary person would have been able to actually know about the process of partition specifically in the 1920s. Now that sort of it was referred to at the start, the sort of uh, I think 440,000 words of the treaty debates, I don't think which were released to the Irish public for some 50 years. Boundary Commission famously suppressed in a United Ireland effort by Craig and Cosgrave in the Tripartite Agreement in November 1925. And also, Edith um, Blackham, I think, as Minister in the Irish Free State in 1922, with the kind of move towards appeasement, or kind of at least um, a kind of um, collaboration on the effort of Northern Nationalists, also suppresses the sort of um, outrages about the Belfast pogroms, which the Free State had actually commissioned a priest to write in Belfast in the 1920s. So if we're going to talk about hearts and minds, and we're going to you know, use that, which is something I mean uh, we should at least contest, I think what we also need to look at is how sources aren't immediately available to people then as they are now, but also how this deterministic reading of Irish um, partition in particular becomes dominant because of that very lack of memory or lack of actual knowledge in the 1920s as well. And I thought I might just reflect a little bit on that and see what people would say.
0: And how would you say, are you saying so in, in, in all of that that the sources are there but were censored at the time and are now becoming available?
9: Yeah, and they seem as if these things are obvious or kind of, um, I, I would suppose, um, um, self-evident in um, the 1920s when there's no sense of this whatsoever in the 1920s. To look, for, exa- for example, at Irish culture in the 1920s, I think what you find is a lot of confusion about what's happening and not like this kind of idea of this is always going to happen beforehand. Um, and that's something I'd just like to sort of offer up, at least, okay. as a response. Dermot?
2: What has me thinking uh, about that subject um, is The idea, as as I articulated through the work of Charles Townsend, this this idea of a mental uh, partition, predating a a physical partition, um, mention was made of the Bureau of Military History statements earlier on. Um, I was always interested in them for their introductions. Do people delve straight into 1913 and join the volunteers or do they give some sense of how they thought um, about Ireland, about Ireland as an entity, about uh, Ireland North and South? Uh, very few of them do, and it's often been referred to as an Achilles heel uh, of, 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 many, of, of many nationalists, of many southern nationalists, uh, that they don't understand uh, the complexity. And it's why I quoted Claire Healy in relation to the, uh, the northern situation and the northern mind. Uh, and what is the northern mind? For many people, the northern mind is different. It's wired in a different way, and they often see it as more, as more difficult as you could argue they do to this day. Um, because there is that that sense uh, of it as a place apart, And I don't think it's it's not just about what became the Northern Ireland, it's about Ulster, you know, as a nine-county province. Many in Donegal uh, felt that they were um, somewhat cut adrift uh, in in relation to um, not just the settlement of late 1921, um, but culturally and mentally, that there is that feeling. That's why I quoted the idea of the Highlanders, um, that, you know, that, that, that's a very strong image, you know, that we are being cast... Well, well here's rich. a
0: stronger one. J.R. Fisher, who was appointed finally by the British be- as, their, as the Unionist Ulster Unionist representative on the Boundary Commission, because Craig wouldn't put one on. Yeah. J.R. Uh, J. Fisher had earlier called Donegal, which he regretted ha- had been left in, in, the, in the Free State, as our Afghanistan.
2: Yeah. The, yeah. The, sort of the notion of the buffer yeah, state. The remote north which is being used as a phrase even in the 1880s. Um, But we've also got to be conscious to to, to directly address the question, how many people have moved well beyond their localities? How many people have traveled uh, around Ireland? We know activists have. We know there are people who are involved in jobs that required uh, travel. But how many people are actually familiar with the different traditions and, and, and the different character of, of different parts yeah. of Ireland. I think that is a big part of it. And how much information are they actually getting and absorbing about different parts of Ireland? Yeah. Mary Daly,
0: you, were you saying that, pe- that on, on the treaty debates themselves, that there's evidence of the preoccupation only of northerners really t- talking about partition? I
5: mean, as I remember growing up, I, I, I would have thought that the, a civil war took place over partition. And it was only when the late Maureen Wall started del- delving into the yeah. debates, and she came up with a figure of a bit around 10%. And the figure for the secret debates is, is much and much is the same. In other words, it just doesn't feature. Um, I think responding to Stephen, there was, there was an interesting conference held there on the 5th of November, organised by Monaghan County Museum, and there was a panel which I chaired of people from border communities, local historians, and local people talking about. It. They came up with the term of the third country, or in other words, they were neither north nor south, and they see themselves as somehow a place apart from both Belfast and Dublin and I think using that to get into an understanding of that, I really think to grasp, some of what you're dealing with is a matter of getting into the local and the parochial and the particular, not the national, and looking at local council meetings, local newspapers, local community groups, how they interact and engage or don't engage, Uh, Church, uh, Church of Ireland, you know, meetings, Presbyterian assemblies, how they engage or disengage with the realities of partition it worked out in various ways they learned to negotiate it it undoubtedly split families and communities and um, it you, you're i completely agree with german the understanding of that outside those communities was and remains i think pretty limited in this country.
0: And families were, of course, split, President Higgins, as you know from your own experience and as, as you indeed told us in, in your paper.
6: Yes, I think, just by, by way of context, my grandfather did, uh, it was one of a family of seven. And of that family of seven, five immigrated to Australia between 1852 and 1860. I think it's very important for us to deal with the questions that that would need another day as to the difference, for example, in the letters from Australia and the letters from Ireland to Australia and the letters from the United States to and from. Uh, I have a a sociologist's view uh, that, uh, on the irish side people discontinued the australian correspondence because they were in fact outside of cities they were in land areas and so forth apart from the difficulties of postage being expensive very expensive. and, mm-hmm. and yeah. they lo- uh, yes and they lost th- they lost connection to some extent i think you have to look at archbishop Mannix as well and his relationship uh, to the trade union movement as well and also the t- the central church's attitude, the incredible efforts to try and dislodge Mannix, which uh, were which there as well. There was incredible uh, support for him in County Cork, for example, where he's from, where my mother's family were involved. Also, my mother was Secretary to the Commonwealth in liscar But on the question of, of, of that you, you ask me, I think uh, 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 we, we you really must, it's the question we've just been answering about how very few people in the South have any really sensitivity to the industrial reality of living in Belfast. And I, I don't speak about Northern Ireland as one entity either. There's a huge difference between Derry and, uh, and Belfast. That's very, very important. And what is fascinating about it is I, I very deliberately mentioned, I, was lis- I, I listened to Henry Patterson's paper in relation to the experience of his family. And There should be far more, more more, attention given to the incredible efforts of people who are at the, the different skill levels um, to keep sectarianism out of the division. Remember, uh, if, if, it isn't only the Catholics forced to are expelled in the pogroms, but also, as you might call it, the unreliable Protestants. Who are countries kind of now? And you look at who are they, and you'll see that it is. This is why it is so important to see where the anti-communist thing is coming in and the labelling of agitators, Bolshevists and so forth. There was no sign of very many communists in the south, for example, but the rhetoric was uh, was immense and. There's a thing to it, too. Remember, I totally agree with the distinctiveness of the Ulster experience. Remember, you have the Ulster custom in relation to land. That's different to the tenants' relationship in the South. You also have very specific experiences in relation to the dignity and ethics of work in the workplace, which the working class people have in, uh, in Northern Ireland. So in a way, a great division had happened as a result of the Act of Union. In the location of possibilities for lives and everything, and that in turn, then when you came, I think people are underestimating all the time. I think in relation to the migration, people are absolutely trying to make a fist of life, and when they, when they're trying to do that, this is just that the immigration figures are huge, and the immigration to the United States is not singular. It has layers and layers of entirely different uh, experiences. And the other one about it isn't about the Irish language that, are, that, that I mentioned. The Presbyterian contribution to the Irish language is immense, and also to culture and music uh, uh, and, and everything. So wha- you, I asked uh, somebody one time about is it, It's one thing to say, that, you know, that, that let us say about belief system, but it's very significant when you say that your particular version. Is the one that must exclude all others, uh, which very quickly emerged in relation. You have Austin Clarke's poem about the cabinet outside the railings, not being able to go inside for the funeral, but equally on the other side, you have the bitterness in there, and you. There is a kind of a little bit of evasion going on, is to uh, the manner in which, a not very theological version of it of religion, uh, was used to divide people who were trying to make a life in different circumstances of agriculture and industry. And that's the future, really. But what's significant is the way in which people are writing out uh, the the question about the blackening, for example. This goes, the 1930s is another day, but uh, when you could, those who came back in 1936 wouldn't be hired in a school. I refer to it as the the awful 1930s. I think this is just everything. I, I find it hard to see morality in any much aspects of it.
0: Right. And what about what about Machnov now? The f- the oh. the future. Well, I'll ask the audience first about that. Oh, do. You? As as to as to what? Just a more general question. How do? You, how much have you learned from the whole Machnov initiative? Would anybody like to comment on that? As a comment now, not as a question to the to the panel. But has anybody got comments to make on that?
7: Noel Carlin is my name. Um, Just from today's material it is really crucially important and it's been extraordinarily interesting to see the importance of what the President refers to as the people and the perspective from below. What happened for the ordinary man and the ordinary woman in particular the ordinary woman is something that we really have to kind of give more time to and it's something that came across from today's talks particularly from my point of view uh, and just listening to it here as an audience member today.
0: My name is Joel Herman. I'm a PhD researcher at Trinity. Uh, I think, yeah, just just to even, it might overlap a little bit with that, but just the kind of different, all the papers were fantastic. You know, we heard about, you know, the Irish context through kind of the pension files, global context, the achievement of the treaty and, you know, the disillusionment it caused, uh, religious context in the Catholic Church, social context and, and kind of in a literary sense, um, and the history of the treaty from below from the president and. Um, I think my question would just be, uh, you know, what in these different areas, what directions forward do we have? What new points of departure uh, just from the speakers in that sense? But yeah, in building this kind of program uh, for a history of below in the sense of the treaty and partition. Okay. Well, I'm going to stay with the president on this. Just the future uh, shape of Makhnov. This is the fourth session and there are two to come. So what's coming next?
6: Okay. On that last question, I think that the future should be about achieving universal basic services which can be shared, and that should be the debate about the connection between inclusive economies, social justice and ecological responsibility. That framework gives us a whole new space to discuss all these issues in. and that. Well, what's coming next? There are two more magnums planned. Uh, I think the next one, the fifth seminar, will take place in the spring of 2022, and it will be titled Constitutional, Institutional and Diplomatic Foundations, Complexity and Contestation. See the constitution vision will be there, but also how are the new institutions shaping up? and what will they tell us for the future? And I think as well that we're hoping to do do that in terms of both the Irish Free State and the Northern Ireland um, administration and try and deal with this issue that I referred to as well about minorities and the discussion about the majority-minority relationship uh, and so on. And then it will try and look as well as how both entities in a way looked abroad, for example, to the League of Nations and how are they to deal with the International Labour Organization. Then the second one, Uh, I'll announce the speakers closer to the time and that then the sixth seminar the final one in autumn 2022 is when I look back at all of that has been discussed across the the previous five but also I think it will uh, I'll really look I think here at at, um, how how can the music for example survive on an all island basis and what are the significance of films that have been made, the novels and stories that have been written, but it's really saying about it is uh, in the fullness of the experience of life, uh, uh, how are people seeing it now, so I think I will introduce really scholars and thinkers not just from history but. Uh, also from the cultural theory area and from uh, from the performing culture and uh, and also very very something that has never grounded itself enough sufficiently the, the sociological perspective and also I want I want to try and look at how international scholarship that Ireland isn't just a kind of a, a, a commodity to be f- polished up for scholarship in a way it is about people who call themselves Irish wherever they are. Well, on behalf of the... And that one will take place in the autumn of 2022.
0: Well, on behalf of the audience uh, out there watching this on the webcast and the audience, indeed, who are assembled here, I'd like to thank you, President Higgins, for hosting all of this and to Dermot Ferriter for his paper today and to to the other four uh, scholars who responded to it. And thank you, indeed. And the key um, website for connection to all of this and indeed to the new volume which is available online um, free of charge is the key contact is president.ie. If you go to that you'll get all the details of how to access the e-book and how to watch further developments in Machnaf from the Hyde Room in Oras and Uttarán. Thank
8: you for watching.